VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, October the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, we all know that the Stanley Cup had been in the province three times prior, right? You know, Danny Cleary, Michael Ryder, and all the fun we had with Alex Newhook and his Stanley Cup championship parade and day and, I guess, a few days while the Newhook family and friends partied her up. It's back in town, or pardon me, it's back in the province again, now for the fourth time. This time it's been making its way to Twillingate and into Gander because, of course, Twillingate back in 2020 won Kraft Hockeyville. So they were unable to play the NHL preseason game between Ottawa and Montreal in Twillingate, so they moved it to the Steel Community Centre in Gander. That game is tomorrow night. Habs don't look very good at all. Ottawa looks like they have a pretty good team this year. The controversy was, in some corners, is that because the folks in Twillingate won the Kraft Hockeyville prize package and were unable to host the game, what kind of priority would they get to get tickets to see the game in Gander? I don't know how that worked out. I know Kraft and the people that are part of the organizing committee I've had to do these types of things many times in the past, but the cup back in the province today. Pretty cool. All right, there's the Stanley Cup. <laughs> I hear people and I see people sort of mocking or giggling at the fact that so many people are following along to see how many home runs Aaron Judge, New York Yankee slugger, can hit this year. I kind of enjoy it. Personally, he's having an outstanding year. So last night he hit his 62nd. So overtakes Roger Maris and has, now has the most home runs in a single season in the American League. And the joke that's being thrown around is, well, congratulations on hitting the seventh most home runs of all time. I get it. I mean, we know the record holder is Barry Bonds, but there's only three guys ahead of him on the list, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and Bonds. It's the first time in 21 years that someone has hit 60 home runs. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton came close back in 2017 when he hit 59. But I just think it's a fun story to chase along with because there's a lot of bad stuff happening. So I kind of enjoyed the home run race. 62 is a whopping big number. And then you get the stories about who catches these historic balls. And as an Atlantic, uh, pardon me, the American League leader, it will have some value, no question about it. I remember the story where Mark McGuire hit his records at that point, his record-setting home run. And the Cardinals, he was playing with the Cardinals at the time, the guy who caught the ball, he was offered a signed bat and a ball and a jersey and whatever else, tickets to games and things like that. And he said, all I want to do in addition to that is meet Mark McGuire. McGuire said no. So what happened? But he kept the ball, he sold it a couple of months later for $2 million. So who caught the ball last night? A fellow named Corey Humans. But he doesn't really need the money. He's the vice president at Fisher Investments. They manage almost $200 billion worldwide. So I imagine Corey will have that in his study as opposed to at Sotheby's for auctions. So anyway, 62 dingers. For Judge. All right, for those of you who have, whether it be uh, sons or daughters or grandsons or daughters, that are part of the traveling teams gone off to the soccer nationals, I'm trying to keep an eye on the team so we can keep an eye on how they're doing and let you know wh what's going on. So do me a favor. When you see some scores floating by, the tournament starts today. If you can send me that information, that would be really, really great. I'd appreciate that. And good luck and safe travels to all the major midget teams from this province making their way to Moncton to play in the Atlantic Challenge Cup. They left this morning. We wish them good luck on the road. All right, let's get a little bit of arts going here. 
It was oh, get get that out of the way. It was today in history in 1969 that Monty Python's Flying Circus was first broadcast on the BBC. They had recorded it back in September, but it made it to the small screen today in 1969. And we see Telltale Harbor, of course, the musical starring Alan Doyle, co-written by Ed Rich, for instance. They're touring their way through the province, looking forward to seeing that next week. And then there's a curling musical. I guess you really truly can make musical theatre about just about anything in the world, including curling. So it's called Second Shot, the curling musical. It's going to be at the Arts and Culture Centre here in St. John's tomorrow evening, right through Saturday. One of the fun parts about this show, it's a bit of a choose-your-adventure. At the intermission, you can vote for what team you'd like to see win the championship. And then, of course, the actors and musicians will take that storyline home. So I think that's kind of cool. And we did see this week that Come From Away took its final curtain and final bows on the stage in Broadway. <sighs> One question that I would have is, remember at the beginning we're thinking, how come we're not doing more to advertise the province as a vacation destination, given just how many heartstrings were tugged when people watched Come From Away? I think it would always be helpful if when people came, I, you know, you don't want to give them a questionnaire. <laughs> it's not like we want to grill you upon arrival. But I wonder just how many people travel to this province simply because they saw Come From Away. I bet you it's a big number. It's got to be. And I think it would be cool to find out if we could have that kind of info available. But you know the deal. All right. I guess more important matters of the day. Yesterday, with the update regarding the aftermath of uh, Hurricane or post-tropical storm Fiona and the devastation left behind here in this province, so the province followed through with their plan, for a $30 million support package for those who don't have insurance to cover their losses. And by the sounds of it, the consensus is no insurance, especially when we talk about storm surge damage. Apparently, ministers responsible, whether it be Sarah Studley or Andrew Parsons, are working with the industry to try to figure out what could be done in the future because we're going to need that type of insurance coverage in place. So the package includes some $10,000 for any household that is unable to return to their home following the storm. Apparently, there's more than 800 households, more than 1,000 people, who have indeed registered with the Canadian Red Cross to receive the report. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 260 dwellings have been damaged by the storm. Some absolutely will not be livable anywhere in the future. So if you don't have the coverage, the province is going to be where there to pick up the pieces. Some of the questions will be, you know, is it about... Uh, appraised value, and then you get that money to rebuild. But of course, with the cost of everything in this world, materials and labor, rebuilding might not be replicating the house and the size of the home that you once lived in. And I know that might be splitting some pairs, but that's soon going to be part of the conversation. In addition to that, the federal government announced a $300 million package for storm recovery, most of that through the Disaster Financial Assistance Program. It covers up to 90% of eligible uh, repairs, but a lot of this will be with federal infrastructure, community infrastructure. There is some coverage for individual losses to make up the difference between what maybe the province is able to help you with and what you actually lost and the financial value of it. Fixing the roads and buildings and bridges, you know, costs associated with evacuation, food, shelter, clothing, all inside of this pocket of money. I don't know what that means for this province exactly, for a dollar amount, but it's going to be shared throughout the four Atlantic Canadian provinces. And on that front, look, we know we got absolutely pummeled here. Then you look at what's happening in the rest of Atlantic Canada. We're trying to restore power. In PEI alone, there's 9,000 customers who don't have power 12 days later. Thousands in Nova Scotia, same circumstance, don't have power. I know some workers here working for Bell Alliant and Newfoundland Power have made their way to the other Atlantic Canadian provinces to help out. But it might be up until Sunday 
before PEI customers, 98% of them, have their power restored. Imagine, 12 days later, still no power. Speaking of power. All right. So, when it came time for then-Premier Williams to announce they were going to develop the Churchill River one more time, this time Oscar Falls. And the arguments were, well, let's try to get around the boogeyman that is the province of Quebec. And the nefarious nature of trying to deal with Hydro-Quebec. And then it was to do away with the puking pollution coming out of the Holyrood Thermal Generating Station. Then there was concerns about the Water Management Agreement, which we're told has been settled, but it's hard to find it written in black and white that it has absolutely been settled. So all of those arguments were made for the justification, and some of it made no sense when it came to the demand for power. You know, the demand may indeed increase over the next 10, 20 years, but it wasn't part of the plan since 2012 to today. So the project is years over schedule, $13 billion and counting, and now, lo and behold, and I guess we could see this coming, given the persistent problems with the Labrador Island link, good God, the reliability concerns with 1,100 kilometers of transmission towers and wires through the long-range mountains. So now what's the outcome? Hydro yesterday, with probably the most firm statement on the unreliable nature of Muskrat Falls, basically because of the Labrador Island link. Now, power is flowing through that subsea cable, but not going to be reliable. If you read between the lines and make it firm, uh, firm declarations here, the boondoggle is even worse than we thought. So now the plan has been made to invest some $522 million to add an eighth, generation, an eighth generating unit at Beta Spare. Keeping the thermal plant in Holyrood as what they're calling a bridge backup from Musgrave Falls. So one of the key issues was to do away with Holyrood. Mm-mm. Until there's some other form of backup added to the grid, Holyrood's not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. Or it doesn't look like it anyway. So that's $522 million at beta spare. Whatever it's going to cost to keep Holyrood operational, it's a pretty old facility, so that's going to obviously cost money. It's extremely expensive to burn that bunker diesel or grade 6 diesel fuel, whatever the firm, whatever the proper reference is. But the province's uh, power system now, the demand is about 2,200 megawatts. It remains to be seen whether or not the capacity, which we're told at firm maximum output at Muskrat is 824, now with this addition given to uh, Beta Spare, kind of matches what the Muskrat Falls project can deliver. But here's some of the big questions. And we know that, yes, there's been some deals made between the province and the federal government to try to control the rates. We don't know where it's going to land because we have no idea when this will be fully commissioned and fully flicked on and all the problems the bugaboos and the gremlins dealt with. But where does GE stand in all this? You know, we've got to deliver power to America. They came in on schedule, on budget, with the Maritime Island Link, $1.5 billion. We owe them in the neighborhood of 22% of the power from scratch just because of that investment and our connection to the mainland, which is one of the most important features of this particular project of Muskrat Falls. But what's the contract look like with GE? What sort of financial liabilities will they have to suck up? Or does it all fall back to where it always does, me and you? And when people say, you know, the same thing is happening again potentially with green hydrogen or what have you, that there's going to be some people that get filthy rich and the rest of us not so much. Like 99.9 of us ratepayers did not get rich on the Muskrat Falls project. We simply will have to foot the bill. So that's really something else. Holyrood's sticking around, absolutely, certainly for years to come. And investing in Beta Spare, $522 million. Man, oh man. 
If we want to talk about it, let's do it. All right, let's move into healthcare. This this story is really something. We hear an awful lot now about work life balance. And it's not just in healthcare, it's across the entire gamut of people who are working in any professional capacity. This story regarding paramedics, and we've really got to shine another brighter light on the issues surrounding the paramedics in the province. This particular story comes from Labrador. Happy Valley Goose Bay. So two paramedics are said that's it, can't do it anymore. One guy hung on for as long as five years, and he says that's not the that's not the rule. That's the exception. Some paramedics are up there for six months, maybe a year, and say that's it, can't do it. Some of the overtime numbers are absolutely unreal. One of the quotes from one of the paramedics who quit, he said the hospital did own you. You had no time for extracurriculars, family, pets, nothing. And of course, that is just completely and utterly unmanageable. Here's some overtime numbers. During the 2021-2022 fiscal year, six of the paramedics clocked in more than 1,000 hours of overtime each. One particular paramedic was averaging 33 hours of overtime per week. There was another paramedic punching in more than 100 hours on the job every week between regular overtime and standby shifts. How can anybody, how can anybody keep up with that? How could you possibly be at your level best? with such a critical role that you're playing as a first responder, when you are absolutely, and there's no other way to look at it, but you're burnt to a crisp. So I know the paramedic issue here. We got a note this morning from a listener who talked about some of the 911 calls that were gone unanswered here in Eastern Health this past weekend, some 15. We refer to them as the red alerts. The hours that they're sitting there trying to offload their patients to the emergency room attendants so they can get back out on the road and satisfy some of those emergency calls to 911. But... There you go. I think the work-life balance, there's lots of stuff going on with retention, or pardon me, recruitment. But the retention issue, boy, oh boy, that's quite another. Then yesterday we heard an announcement regarding incentives to lure people home. So this is Come Home Year 2022, the Healthcare Worker Edition. It's actually pretty big. This is about offers to return in service to eligible physicians, nurses, and paramedics that have been living outside the province for at least six months. So there's two different areas. For folks who have some relationship or they're from this province or did some of their training in this province, for eligible doctors, $100,000 for a five-year agreement. This is on top of every other incentive that's already been put out there for them. Primary care paramedics and registered nurses offered $50,000 for a three-year return and service agreement. And again, on top of all the other incentives already been announced. There are indeed incentives for those who don't have any attachment to the province, didn't train here, weren't born here. For those professionals, $50,000 for a five-year return and service agreement for doctors. That's half for what we saw for folks with an attachment to the province. So this makes us real competitive. But as the minister rightfully points out, this is absolutely just a recruitment tool. Will it actually keep people here in the system? I don't know. I mean, I guess it remains to be seen. But when we hear the overtime stories and the nurses' stories and the doctors' stories and the need to move to salary away from fee-for-service, Boy, oh boy. I mean, I guess good on the government for trying to do what they can on the recruitment level. And that's some big dollars because when you talk about the other incentive packages that are already in play, that's pretty big money. And you want to take it on? We can do it. And I did see an interesting story, and I don't know how much it has to do with this province particularly, but someone who was part of a hacking group, a ransomware hack, and he's associated with Netwalkers, which is a Russian-speaking bunch of nuisance hacker criminals. This guy got 20 years in prison for his role in some of the hacking that had been happening. And they referred directly to healthcare authorities that were hacked. So 
It'd be nice to know, and I don't know what we do with the information if we had it about who hacked us and what the demand was, ransom or otherwise. But but he got 20 years. Good on you. Hopefully you serve hard time down in the United States. And this one, look, it's a very difficult conversation, but like most difficult conversations, when we don't have them, things don't improve. We don't have a good understanding of what's happening. There's lots of controversy surrounding the introduction or the legalized opportunity for Canadians to get medical assistance in dying, you know, referred to as the acronym of MAID. For some people, it's the dignified way out to alleviate the excruciating pain they may be suffering with one ailment or another. There's lots of concerns about it being abused, whether it be for folks who are mentally ill or what have you. But this one story come from Manitoba is absolutely heartbreaking and not what medical assistance in dying is supposed to be about. This poor woman had ALS, 44 years of age. She, sh she chose to die. And it wasn't necessarily about the pain or the change in her body. She was mentally still there and had more life in her, so she says, and so her representatives have said and her home care worker said. But because she couldn't get enough assistance at home, it became intolerable. She couldn't do it anymore. So there's a long, long way between making a decision between you, your family, and your doctor about whether or not medical assistance in dying might be an option for you to consider and maybe to choose, but to be pushed to the brink to want to die because you don't have enough home care? Boy, I mean, that story is going to have to ripple through while we figure out something that was already extremely controversial. And now with declarations, dying declarations made by this 44-year-old woman that simply because she couldn't get any care or enough care, she chose that way out. That is extremely sad stuff. Uh, very quickly before we get to your calls. There's a couple of people that are in contact with me all the time about what we're seeing in the schools. And we know that when we went back to school this year in the K-12 system, you know, it's always been the concept of education is the first to open and the last to close. And in-person learning to try to address learning loss and all the needs of students, we understand those conversations. But it was always about, you know, if you just have the sniffles because of an allergy or if you have a bit of a cough because you had a cold, you can go to school. Of course you can. We all did. But then it was some of the self-assessments about whether or not you may indeed have contracted COVID. We don't know, but the numbers that have been released by the district to this one lady in particular who contacts me about the, her concerns in school, on September 28th, 30% of students were absent. That's a big number. I only mention it because we were never given a definitive understanding about what threshold had to be met before they addressed in-person learning in school. You can only hope it continues safely, but 30% is way above average, and so it would be nice to know if they can break that down to give us an understanding of what contributes to the 30%. And also yesterday in a very, I think, out of nowhere announcement at Memorial University, apparently they dropped their mask mandates as well. So being applauded in some corners, but you know the deal when we talk about COVID prevention measures. It gets loud applause in one corner and serious condemnation in another. You want to take it on from any angle? Let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a call. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show this morning. Let's begin on line number three. Say good morning to the president at NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, to you and your listeners. I know uh, we wanted to talk to you about the contract that's been ratified by 18 of the 21 collective bargaining units, but I'd like to begin with the paramedic system because of the story I read from Happy Valley Goose Bay and a listener who sent us a note saying that there was as many as 15 red 
alert in Eastern Health on Saturday alone. Can you give us an update based on what you know? Paddy, a number of paramedics across Newfoundland and Labrador, as you know, we represent uh, in both the public and private sector. Uh, this is an issue we've been talking about, as you know, for some time. And the story that you pointed to in Labrador, it's an extremely sad and desperate situation with a, a situation that's being repeated across this province. Uh, red alerts are not being reported daily here, but they are happening, not just this past Saturday. Uh, we're hearing members, I've had members during work hours reach out to me, distraught, saying to me, Jerry, the next call comes in, I do not have an ambulance. Just a couple of weeks ago, for the entirety of the Metro and Conception Bay South area, there was none. Uh, the story in Goose Bay these are paramedics, women and men. One case, a young f- woman with a family uh, expected to work a thousand hours overtime in a year. That's not a way to operate an emergency system, Patty. And we've been saying some time it's got to be addressed. It's got to be worked on aggressively uh, because for the sake of the general population and for the sake of the women and men working in that system. I mean, we've been talking about this for years, but yeah. specifically in Labrador, I think I read that Labrador Grenfell Health has postings for eight paramedics. So what's the normal quota of paramedics and how many are actually working right now? Do you happen to know? They are down a significant number. The last count I'm hearing is probably four or five positions that they are short. Uh, normally in Goose Bay, Sheshashi area, there would be uh, two units available to respond. Remember, that was taken in uh, because of extreme troubles in a private area where the public should have took it in the regional health authority and done better. Uh, response time data that we have seen through a provincial working group is alarming. Uh, that's when fully staffed, so you can imagine now when it's not so in a area like that with a small complement of paramedics, if you remove four or five, if they were doing previous to that, Patty, uh, I th- think one paramedic was doing 33 to 40 hours of overtime per week. Can you imagine what they will be doing next week? Uh, these paramedics cannot do it. Uh, they, it's not humanly possible to expect it of them. Expected of them. Uh, and we've been saying this for some time. I, I only wish that the health authorities and the previous Minister of Health would have listened to us a couple of years ago when we were talking about these issues. I'm comfortable in saying we would not be in the situation we are today had they been addressed years ago. We've looked at other provinces when we talk about the competitive nature of offers, rate of pay, incentives and bonuses, whether it be for doctors or nurses or what have you. Can you help us understand what it looks like in the competitive nature for paramedics? My understanding, based on the communications I've had with paramedics, is they're choosing places specifically like Ontario, where it seems to be more competitive and they offer the, uh, they do offer a little bit more of the so-called work-life balance. So do we know how competitive we are because that's only about re- that's only about recruitment i know retention is a different thing but what about the competitive nature of our offers private or public in many areas when you because some things that's not taken into account there's a small cost of living applied to places like labrador it certainly doesn't offset the cost of living uh, for most areas in our province especially labrador uh, so when you compare to ontario we are not competitive with a place like ontario the comparators that some look at would be the Atlantic provinces, where we are competitive with Atlantic provinces. But you've got to look at it's Ontario now, because there's a shortage of paramedics in Ontario. There's a shortage in Alberta. And those
those places are not are going to draw away our paramedics. They're going to draw away other professionals that can uproot and leave. But uh, if anything good, many cannot uproot and leave. So that's keeping them here. Uh, and only for them, we would not be able to sustain the system. Moving on to a different topic. We had a caller yesterday who was protesting outside of your offices up uh the top of Bell's turn, about the fact that he had a grievance that was a decade old that's never been dealt with. He doesn't know why it's never been dealt with. On the heels of that call, I got a handful of emails saying, or telling me of other circumstances where there's dozens, potentially, grievances in place that have been formally filed and nothing's ever been done about them at the union level. One of the key features of the union is to protect the workers against any undue actions by their employer. So what's the process or the protocols for you know, evaluating whether or not you're going to follow through and fight for your rank and file members with a grievance. Patty, one thing I've done, and I know it's been some years since I've taken office, but immediately upon taking office, we put processes in place to look at, because that was one thing we had with some issues with uh, processes around grievances, but it's not a one-sided thing. Unfortunately, uh, there's processes that are there that deal with labor disputes with multiple employers that as we followed through on. So I can't get into the particulars of a, the individual that called. Uh, I'm familiar with the, the matter. Our staff are uh, certainly don't think anyone's right to demonstrate, and certainly not me. That's uh, something that somebody should be able to do. But unfortunately, in this circumstance, it will change nothing with the process in place, in this case, with the Department of Justice. Can you ensure that the backlog of grievances that have not been dealt with, people are going to be given an opportunity to be told why? The, that is, like I said, being worked on, Patty, absolutely. Uh, a significant piece of work, something that's been implemented in this union, unlike most, as we now have dedicated resources uh, to address dispute resolution. Unfortunately, when it comes to the other side, the multiple employers we deal with, uh, we run into problems. And just here in the province, the number of arbitrators in Newfoundland and Labrador is not just NAEP using them. Every union, every uh, employer in the province used these same arbitrators and we have about 10 at present. Uh, we've been lobbying for some time for additional arbitrators in Newfoundland and Labrador to a, to a joint committee, uh, but again, that's not being appropriately addressed. And So again, it's not just NAEP used these arbitrators or dispute mechanisms, uh, it's multiple unions, multiple employers uh, where arbitrations are already now being booked into 2023. Off to the uh, contract that's been ratified through vote by 18 of the 21 bargaining units, the three outstanding. Is there, I know you haven't been negotiating in public in this go-around, but there's quotes about being shown that they're valued for the job they do. What does that mean? What, what that means is... I just look back, and uh, the frustrations, for example, are really predominant in healthcare. Healthcare workers, especially for the last 30 months, uh, have been on the front line of a global pandemic, and none like here in Newfoundland and Labrador, where we had shortages before we went into the pandemic. So trying to recognize the value of work, like paramedics we just talked to, or the nurses that we represent, licensed practical nurses or cardioperfusions or whatever, uh, looking at the value of the work to do was a new job evaluation system implemented just before I took office. Uh, it, it leaves a lot of concerns and still be worked through, uh, but that's what needs to be looked at is, again, those compare why can provinces attract some of our members uh, away? Uh, are we competitive? In some instances, we are competitive, uh, but then workers will say they shouldn't have to rely on or being have to work at exorbitant hours, Patty, is 
bottom line. Sure, but I mean, you mentioned healthcare workers. We talk about that all the time here. But the three outstanding units, as far as I understand, are air services, correctional officers, and marine services. So I know we talked about 24-hour shifts for CEOs and what have you. So this is not healthcare. These are three separate units. So is it the same, same argument, same issue? No, and it's different. And the complexity of it, there's nothing more frustrating. I'll use the air ambulance, for example. The pilots at the front of the plane, the air ambulance, air ambulance now, it's not on the Department of Health, it's on the Work Service Transportation. So when something's done for the healthcare providers in the back of the air ambulance, that's done different than those that are operating the air ambulance, that causes problems. They're an invaluable, critical resource in Newfoundland Labrador, a very small number. But again, when one department treats the two crews on the, the same uh, vessel, basically differently, that causes major problems. So just an example there, two separate departments uh, responsible for the same provision. So one thing coming health court and LSD inclusion of air and road ambulances one entity that can't happen soon enough last one and this is a this is a big question so it was years ago when we realized just the dire straits that the province was in financially and there was even conversation not making payroll conversations about not being able to even secure long-term borrowing and the unions would say, we are going to be part of the solution. What do you say now when we have things like $2,000 recognition bonus, 8% increase over four years? What, how do you approach this when you talk to non-unionized members about what's best for the province? Because every bit of increase that your, your, your members will get will all be borrowed, every single cent of it. What do you say to that argument that some people make? Uh, we approach this, and, and again, make no apologies for what workers have been able to maintain the public sector in this case that's been at the, that's at the front line all the time, but clearly demonstrate their value. We have said before, and we stand by it, that the, problem, the problems this problems can't be borne on the back of frontline workers. Uh, so in this case, we said from day one in bargaining that we were not prepared to see a, a further erosion of benefits and that workers deserved at least a reasonable level of compensation because as we just talked about earlier, if you want to recruit people there, you've got to be competitive with the rest of Canada and we notice places where we short, fall short. Uh, so recognizing those employees is necessary and as you just said, there's bargains and even ones that accept it are quite frustrated uh, because these workers provide invaluable service. The level of compensation uh, is a necessary factor. Uh, and again, the problems that's been created problems, it has been frontline workers that created them. Appreciate the time this morning, Jerry. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. That's uh, NAEP President Jerry Earle. Okay, let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of the callers in the queue. Francis wants to talk about GST. That's uh, on the agenda in Ottawa. We'll get some details there. And Madeline wants to talk about a donation that they've made to the folks out in the Port of Basque region. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Francis, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Yes, how are you today? I couldn't be better. How about you? Good. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. Um, uh, of course, I was up real early this morning seeing that the GST was in my account, my you know, the increase. And it wasn't. Um, so at 8 o'clock, I got through to the GST department and uh, was told from them that the bill... C30 mm-hmm. has not been completely passed yet. It has not. 
Uh, no. The Minister of Finance, Christopher Freeland, and of course the Deputy Prime Minister, she testified in front of the Finance Committee on Monday. That committee passed it unanimously with no amendments. Then the chair of that committee is a man named Peter Fonseca. He presented it back on the floor of the House of Commons on Tuesday. It's gone through. It was got fast-tracked there because, of course, you have the, the relationship between the Liberals and the NDP. Now it goes to the Senate for the final review and vote and eventually royal assent. So that can happen as early as today. But until that happens, there will be no bump. Okay, I just wanted to let your listeners know that I'm sure they looked at their file already and said, oh, no, it's not there, you know. Yeah, and plus, you know, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that we didn't even know and we were never told that the GST increase would even be on the October check. The only vague reference the federal government made was that people would get it before the end of the year. So now through CRA, people who are already on the GST list, you'll either get a standalone check, which I assume has to happen now because the next payment isn't until January as far as I understand. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get a standalone check for whatever increase that you're eligible for because, yeah, it just hasn't, hasn't made its way through the formal process in Ottawa just yet. Might happen today. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for uh, that information, Patty. I didn't know the whole thing about it. So um, thank you. Be safe. Wear your mask. And great show. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself, Francis. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And the GST bump, of course, is for six months. And what it adds up to, single Canadians, no kids, receive an extra $234. A couple with two kids or more receive up to an extra $467. Seniors, this is an average across the board, receive an additional $225. And you did not get it today, but you'll get it before the end of the year because it is going to get passed by the Senate. And I suppose it comes in the form of a standalone check or direct deposit. Shortly after, let's go to line number two. Madeline, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Madeline McCall calling from Fairyland, Patty. Uh, this Saturday, we are having, uh, between the Southern Shore Folk Arts and the town of Fairyland, are having a farmer's market down by the center with entertainment and things for the kids. And it's free. It's running from 11 to 4. Uh, there'll be crafts and vegetables and baked stuff. And for me personally, I am doing a bake sale there and doing some spins. And all the proceeds from my table will be going to the Red Cross for uh, to help the people in port bass uh, we did one in March, myself and a couple of other ladies, and we donated over $3,000 to Ukraine. So we're hoping we'll do as good or better at this one. So I just want to tell, let everybody know that we'll be down there. Play, if you want to come and donate, do the spins, buy some of my baking, we'd love to see you. It's really heartwarming to know just how many people like yourself and individuals, businesses all across the province so quickly wanted to do something to help out. Well, if we don't help each other, there's nobody else going to help us, right? So the way I look at it is that it could be us next year. It could be. How's things uh, going up the shore? Beautiful. Beautiful day up here. Ocean is calm. The sun is shining. Couldn't ask for a better time. That's what I like to hear. Give the folks the details one more time for where and when to go to the farmer's market. It's uh, this Saturday, the 8th of October, and it's down at the Folk Arts Centre. Weather permitting, it'll be outside. If not, it'll be inside. There'll be local entertainment, crafts, baked goods, and it's running from 11 to 4. Appreciate this, and good luck with it, Madeline. 
Thank you very much, Patty. Enjoy your day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. Yet another example. And plus, uh, some people continuing to reach out to ask me how they can get their donation of hard goods, dried goods, whether it be diapers or whatever, uh, out to Port of Basque. We're still looking for uh, anyone who might be running out that way, whether it be formally with a trailer or a truck, or they're simply heading towards Port of Basque or a surrounding area and might want to throw something in the back on your behalf. I don't know is the short answer. And as soon as I do know, I'll be happy to tell you. Someone's asking for clarification for what I said about monies coming from, whether it be the federal government or the provincial government, to rebuild because they don't have insurance or the insurance is not going to cover their damages or their loss. What, and I don't know if people want to go down this path so far yet, but there's some 800 households, 1,100 people have applied through the Canadian Red Cross for some of these additional coverages. My comment and thought was, and I don't know how this is going to work, and I think these are questions people will be asking, is, okay, so we had a two-story home that was built decades ago with a 1,100-square-foot footprint on the main floor and a crawlspace basement and my shed and my stage, and it's it's gone, gone. The question will be, I suppose, is how they appraise or evaluate the, the amount of money that you're due based on the value of your property and what that will mean for your ability to rebuild what you did lose. So, quite likely, given the costs of materials and labor when you built decades ago versus the cost of materials and labor today, people might not be able to replicate exactly what they had lost. That's the only th- comment or thought because I don't know how else they're going to approach this. Plus, there's all kinds of tangles about even what that $300 million from the federal government looks like. A lot of it will be associated with uh, uh, municipal infrastructure, buildings and roads and bridges and the like. But the specifics and how much of that will flow to this province, I have no idea. I don't think anybody does at this point. But that was the only comment I made about the rebuild. You know, we can always talk about where and how we rebuild. But what we're able to rebuild, given the money that we get from one level of government or the other, That's the point I'm making. Will you be able to put the exact same style, size of home back with the money you get? Don't know. Just a question. And I'm sure people are asking exactly that as they try to figure out getting back into their homes. Imagine there's still 48 households in hotel rooms out there. People who were displaced that were staying in the schools that have now reopened have moved off to the St. James Anglican Church. So we are, I know, just 12 days after the fact, but people still scrambling to try to unlock their doors so inspectors can go in and the rest of it. It might be, must be quite something. So if you're around that community or any of the communities impacted on the southwest coast, we'd certainly appreciate your call today to tell us what you're seeing, what you're hearing around the community, and the level of optimism or worry that might be common in your social circles or amongst your family. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back... We're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, just yesterday on the program, we had the executive director of uh, First Light, St. John's Friendship Center on the program, Stacy House, talk about the fact that they have finally presented a report and recommendations, including some 26 recommendations, pardon me, to the provincial government about an additional layer of civilian oversight of the RNC. Talk about things like overhauling the entire system. Talk about uh, preventing misconduct on behalf of their officers, alleged abuse, 
So, you know, directing the force on things like use of force, training and recruitment, independently handling complaints from the public, to work in conjunction with an organization like CERT, the Serious Incident Response Team, which, of course, investigates after the fact. You wonder how that would play into things like the fact that we now know seven women, uh, represented by their attorneys, they filed claim on September 9th in in courts, uh, in the provincial court, pardon me, alleging that they had been uh, sexually assaulted by various on-duty officers working for the RNC. And the only person or the only entity that is uh, named in this particular case is the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, responsible for the force, the sole defendant in the case. They allege that the government uh, should have known or ought to have known that officers were targeting women, they say, in the suit in the St. John's area and that the government is vicariously liable for the assaults. So they go on to say that, I, I think the way I read the story is, all of these allegations come from police officers allegedly picking up women, young women, in predominantly the George Street area, to offer them a ride home. And then, of course, there's a variety of different uh, allegations made inside here. There's one officer that's been named. None of these charges have been proven in court, I think is fair to add to the conversation, but that lawsuit is proceeding. So whatever can be done for who are the top-notch dedicated professionals who are on the force, hopefully some of the, these things will get us to a much, a much better place. Okay, let's go to line number one and say good morning to the co-chair of the St. John's Youth Engagement Working Group, and that's uh, Maria Penny. Good morning, Maria. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you this morning? I'm excellent. Thank you. I'm Tell so us about. To talk to you. Oh, well, I'm glad to have you on the program. Tell us about what's upcoming with your working group. Excellent. So on Tuesday, October 18th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at City Hall, the Youth Engagement Working Group is hosting a youth forum. This is an opportunity for youth in the city of St. John's to network with each other and council members and to learn more about the youth engagement efforts taking place in the city. So do you have an agenda of issues that you're going to broach, or is it a free-for-all, bring up what you need to talk about? No, we've got a couple of key topics. Okay. We've done some surveys in the past, and um, through our youth panel, that's actually online now, you can sign up if uh, youth are interested. We do monthly surveys there. So using those topics, we've developed three or four topics that we're going to talk about. Um, there's going to be time for networking. We're going to be talking about things like economic development, um, environment and sustainability, and public transport. Okay, let's take them one at a time. Uh, economic development, I think, is the first one you said. Well, actually, let me couch it with this question. When youth, who are obviously the future and obviously will be the voter, will obviously be the business owners and the economic drivers themselves in the very near future, if they're not already, do you and the people you survey and the people of your age demographic that you speak to, do you think you're being heard? It's one thing to be asked, it's another thing to be heard. Absolutely. So that's one of the key takeaways from the Youth Engagement Working Group and why this was started. Um, this is a chance for us to give our direct feedback and then watch the action items come out of that and follow up. That's the really important part is the follow up. So, yes, we've been heard because we have this forum now. It's a great chance for us to discuss and continue our voice within the city. What are some of the comments you're hearing when you survey youth in the city surrounding economic development? What are they talking about? So they're talking about um, entrepreneurship is a key one um, and uh, affordable like living in the city. I know minimum wage has recently gone up. 
And so these are all hot topics that we've been talking about, and we want to see what the city's doing well, what the city can improve on, and um, if there's any action items that we can present to the council that can be taken. Give us some idea about the, some of the specifics, because entrepreneurship comes in many different forms or fashions. You either do it on your own or work with Metro Business or your university student, and you get a foot in the door at the Genesis Center or the Center for Entrepreneurship. So outside of those formal organizations that we're all familiar with, what do you think people are talking about with you know entrepreneurship? Because again, that can be with monetizing some invention that you have. It can also simply be as something as small as a, uh, a farmer's market in a neighborhood. So what are, what are the people talking about absolutely entrepreneurship takes so many different forms and i think at the youth forum we're going to see what the youth are really looking for for support for those things is it more education on these topics is it easier access to grant is it mentorship all those different things and trying to find out how the city can support them in that i would imagine your group is encouraged with the fact that there's an actual staff member at the city saint john's talking about environmental sustainability climate change and otherwise but that of course that topic is as it's probably as broad and as complicated as any subject matter on the face of the earth maybe outside of economic recovery so again on that front i would imagine youth are a real driving force in that conversation are you encouraged with that staff member what do you think they should be focused on Absolutely. We're definitely encouraged that the city has specific committees focused on the environment and that there are lots of council members who are championing championing the environment. Um, so really hearing what the city is going to do at the youth forum, we're going to have kind of an update as to what the city is currently doing. And then from that, the youth can take that away, discuss and figure out if there's anything else that the city could do, what we would like to see from that. This is really a fact-finding mission. Um, get our voice out there, get our opinions, and then see what we can do from there. Yeah, municipal supports for individuals to make different types of decisions is important. For me, and I'll just get your feedback on this, one of the big things that the cities can or towns can do is be very conscientious about how and where they develop. I mean, just think about all the marshlands and bogs and forests that would have done a great job in soaking up the water that's left behind by Hurricane Earl or Fiona, as opposed to how we've developed and what that's meant for flash floods and massive flooding events. So for me, development is one of the key areas to talk about environmental concerns if I'm a municipality your thoughts absolutely and I think we're going to hear lots of different opinions on uh, October 18th and get everyone's different viewpoints we're really hoping to get a wide variety of people between the ages of 18 and 30 come and chat with us so we can really hear from different perspectives um, really see what people's interests are I know we've all seen the damage that recent hurricanes have caused so really seeing how we can take what we've learned in recent time and really put together some action items and uh, my apologies but what was the third uh, item you talked about so uh, economic uh, development pardon me say that again public transit public transit of course there's been so many reviews done of public transit we talk about the need for more uh express routes and better bus shelters and stuff like that do people in your age really want to ride the bus because so many people out there say the metro bus is the loser cruiser. We're the only province that talks like that. You can go to any other major cosmopolitan city in this country, and there could be someone sitting on side of you in the bu- on the bus wearing a five thousand dollars suit. We don't treat it like that around here. What are your fo- What are your friends saying? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because the youth panel recently did an online survey, which was one of our monthly surveys, and we had um, over fifty people respond. And from that survey, we've determined that. 
a lot of people actually do use the bus in our age group, whether it's for school or work. And some of the opinions um, and recommendations from that we have actually shared with Metrobus. So they are actively looking at that. So that is a great action item that we were able to get on board with Metrobus. And we're really encouraged um, by the results that we've seen so far from the survey. We're going to have lots of interesting things to talk about um, on Tuesday, October 18th. And um, it will be interesting to see some of the different perspectives that were different from the survey. This is an in-person opportunity? It is. It's at City Hall from 6 to 8 p.m. And people can register online at engagedstjohns.ca. I suppose that's in the foreign room like most everything else? It is, yes. Okay. Last one, just on a personal note, Maria. Uh, how did you get involved? I started um, back in 2019 um, as part of the Youth Engagement Action Team. So this was a small ad hoc group that the City of St. John put together with um, Councillor Burton as the um, councillor involved. It is now Councillor Jill Bruce. And the Youth Engagement Action Team did a bunch of surveys and outreach within the city for a short period of time. And from that, we provided a list of recommendations to the City of St. John's, one of which was to create a small youth engagement working group and um, the youth forum that we're currently doing. Appreciate the time and good luck with the event, Maria. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. It's Maria Penny. She's the co-chair of said working group. If you want to register for it or find out more about it, if you go to your Google bar and just put in Youth Forum October 18th, City Hall, St. John's, bang, bring it right to it. Let's take a break. When we come back, hopefully you're in the queue. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll free, long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break in the we're coming back. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Just for clarification for something that I mentioned off the top, talking about the young hockey players that are on their way to Moncton to play in the Atlantic Challenge Cup. Here's who they are. These are players from the HPP. That's the High Performance Players Program. There's three boys teams, under 14, under 15, under 16, which is also the Canada Games team. Also, two female teams, U16 and U18, which is also a Canada Games team. They are on their way to Moncton for the Atlantic Challenge Cup. I appreciate PJ Power giving me the correct information. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the coordinator for agriculture in agriculture in the classroom. That's Chelsea Foley. Good morning, Chelsea. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. Thanks. How about you? Oh, grand. Just got back from the Agriculture Expo in Cornerbrook last weekend, so trying to settle back into a new routine. <laughs> Before we get into the classroom operations, what happened at the uh, event on the West Coast? Uh, the Agriculture Expo was hosted by the Federation of Agriculture, and we were there with Agriculture in the classroom with the children's area, with the uh, mechanical milking cow, so everyone got to milk a cow and all the animals were there there were pigs and goats and uh, rabbits and cows so um, it was a lot of fun for friends for the family and there was also a farmer's market so everyone got to purchase local produce from local producers there as well we don't talk near enough well i talk a lot about food on this program food insecurity mm-hmm. and security and agricultural opportunity i can picture my mind's eye being a young lad in the classroom and we would have a uh, couple of eggs in an incubator and hatch some ducklings how does agriculture work in the classroom so with agriculture in the classroom we like to connect students 
through to agriculture through education. So whether it's having farmers go into the classroom and talk to students about where their food comes from, how the agriculture industry works, the importance of the agriculture industry in our province, and just kind of connecting them to agriculture as opposed to, you know, if you ask someone where a carrot comes from, they might say the grocery store. Whereas, you know, we're trying to show them it comes from the, the soil and healthy soil and healthy ground and healthy food. So, you know, that's the connection we're trying to make in the classroom. Do you connect them with opportunities to actually get their hands in the dirt and see how an actual farm operates? Because, you know, we can talk about, well, here's where it comes from. Like my grandfather, Neri, was a farmer. And so we knew about farming growing up. But you can sit in the classroom, say, in the east end of St. John's and get exposed to this. And I love the program. Do they get an opportunity to go out and put their hands in the dirt? They actually, sometimes they don't even have to go outside. So we have the Little Green Thumbs program, and we have indoor classroom gardens in um, over 200 classrooms in classes across Newfoundland and Labrador. So we have Little Green Thumbs, Little Green Sprouts. We do a vermicomposting program, so some schools actually have pet worms in their classroom. Um, And that has led to outdoor classrooms and greenhouses and composting programs in a lot of schools across the province. Do you, or are you able to track just how many children who have been exposed to this will actually look for a career in agricultural opportunities? That is something we're looking at is long-term impacts. And we've noticed, though, a lot of teachers tell us that their ideas of agriculture have changed. So, you know, not everyone has to get their hands dirty and be a farmer, but in the agriculture industry, you can be many things. You can be a vet, you can be an accountant, you can you can run a business and all that kind of stuff. So there's millions of careers in agriculture, and that's the kind of attitude that we're changing over time now. That's an excellent point. Uh, And inside your group, you know, we talk about the fact that the province talks about doubling food production and 64,000 hectares of crown lands to be available for agricultural opportunities or business models or plans. Do you have any idea how quickly any of that is moving, if it's moving at all? I'm not really sure on my part of things with agriculture in the classroom, but I know that there's a lot of work being done with the Federation of Agriculture and the government. Okay, so you're about to hit the big time. And (laughs) you're going to the small screen, and you're going to be on Rogers TV with your own show, Agriculture in the Classroom and Else TV show. Tell us about that. So we were approached by Rogers TV, who um, Dan Warren, the producer over there, had shot one of our videos actually for our YouTube channel a while back. And they liked our videos on our YouTube channel that are kind of education, pe- educate, sorry, educating people about the agriculture industry in Newfoundland and Labrador. So tonight, our first episode airs. We have six episodes coming out, and they're all about different farm tours across the province. I think tonight's episode is featuring technology and agriculture and our Women in Agriculture series, so highlighting the women who work really hard in the agriculture industry. Are you on the show? Are you the, the host, the yeah. star? <laughs> uh, I am making my debut as a television host this evening. I, I worked at Rogers for a number of I, years yeah. in a different roles and capacities. And, you know, when I first went on television at Rogers, I had no training, no experience. My first gig was interviewing hockey players in the intermission down at the Caps games. And basically the training was a, a black X of hockey tape on the floor. Here's the microphone. Stand there. What kind yep. of work did you have to do to prepare yourself to go on TV? Because it's, it's not everybody's bag. I can tell you that looking dead center of a camera lens is not easy first time out. 
well, I guess we'll see tonight, won't we? Because <laughs> <laughs> I had to do the same thing, stand on the black X and speak into the microphone. Did you have any trouble with it? Because I didn't really, but I know a lot of people, their number one fear in this world is probably public speaking, and second would be that cold, dark lens, and you're looking right down the bullseye, no reaction from anybody, you kind of tune out the camera <laughs> operators and the, the floor directors and all the rest. Tell us about the experience. Um, it was a great experience. It was really comfortable. Um, I did have a lot of trouble with public speaking. I still get a little nervous, but um, being in this position now for seven years, I've gotten to talk to a lot of people over the years, so I've been a little bit more comfortable with it. So it was definitely an experience for sure, and I, I get in a couple of good uh, pun agriculture pun jokes, so <laughs> I'm, I apologize for that to anyone listening. <laughs> uh, listen, good on you for doing it, because not everybody would, but it's an important program, not only in the classroom, but I think this probably going to be a very good show too, so I think it premieres tonight night at eight o'clock right yep and then is it on every thursday at eight or, or pardon um, me wednesday at eight or what's the schedule look like we have the schedule posted on our facebook page it looks a little different i think tomorrow there's an episode at 11 a.m friday there's one at 5 30 p.m and then saturday there's three throughout the day and sunday there's four throughout the day uh congratulations on the show and keep up the good work in the classroom chelsea thank you so much take good care you too. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. It's Chelsea Foley. She's the coordinator of agriculture in the classroom NL. It's pretty important, isn't it? Because, you know, like, for instance, we talked yesterday about the fact that there's going to be some big job opportunities in the tech and innovation sector. But, of course, tech and innovation part of agriculture as well. Of course it is. You know, Tech and L themselves say some 5,000 jobs, additional jobs, over the next few years. It already employs about 4,000 people. The industry is valued in and around $1.6 billion, and it can indeed include agriculture. So good on them. That should be a good show, fun show. The more we expose people to what it really means for food production in this province, hopefully we'll make more and more forward traction and momentum to produce more. Remember, we only produce 10% of what we consume. And that's unsustainable. Added with the conversations about food security or insecurity, and we've got ourselves big topics. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the Phoenix pay system. Oh, my. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Uh, I'm sitting here sitting in front of the TV waiting for hockey to start. <laughs> no, I'm not. Not really. But, uh, Patty, uh, two topics that I made this morning, one very brief, and that's about the Phoenix pay system. Uh, you may recall I called you on an occasion or two before in the past or a number of months ago uh, that uh, I was uh, an employee for a short period of time, a casual employee with the Service Canada. Uh, now, when you leave, um, apparently your final pay goes into this abyss called a Phoenix pay system. Patty, it's been 10 months and, and I still have not received my final pay or report on earnings. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were at a private sector where you are now, and I hope this never happens because it's such a good addition, your show is, but you got a layoff, wouldn't you expect <laughs> to receive your final pay? And there's no issues in it, by the way, uh, before 10 months. And if you call about it, uh, they won't talk to you. The agent will say, no, it's it's with the payroll thing, and we're having trouble with the P Phoenix pay system. And uh, uh, we'll get to it. <laughs> but in in my case, Patty, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate in life. I'm not depending on that for, you know, to survive. But I've had, com I've had contact and conversations with a number of other people who are even longer periods of time than me. 
And it's a system, uh, but they won't escalate a call. You say, would well, I'd like to speak to a supervisor? No, we're not taking escalations on this. Nobody, uh, who, who lives like that? What, what business would live with that? I had the very fortunate position of being for a number of years with a great bunch of people where we, we coordinated the payroll and benefits packages for many, many, many thousands of people. And we were a specialty team that resolved any kind of an issue that would cause delays on pay or any kind of a dispute. And we targeted usually when 24 hours, certainly a week would be the most before we'd have it resolved and either it was owed or it wasn't. And if it was, we'd pay it and they'd have it in 24 hours in their bank account. But for some reason, and, our, and by the way, the Minister of Labor on this is a fellow with the name of Seamus O'Regan, they, they just blow it off. So, <laughs> well, they'd like for it to go away. So just for a recap for people who might not be entirely familiar with what we're talking about here. The government of the day sole sourced the contract with IBM to create a new pay, uh, payroll system, uh, payroll system, pardon me, and it's Phoenix. It has never worked. It's six years old. It has never worked and still does not work. There's been thousands of federal employees that were underpaid, overpaid, or not paid at all. People have lost their homes. People have had to file bankruptcy, maxed out their credit cards, maxed out their line of credit, and then the compensation put forward by the Treasury Board of Canada Secretariat, and that expired in March of 2020. The compensation had a threshold of 1500 bucks. They topped out or capped at 2500 bucks for people who lost their homes, went bankrupt, not because they did anything wrong, because they never got their bloody paycheck. <laughs> I mean, our Minister of Labor is Seamus O'Regan. Seamus, come on. What, uh, I mean, I, I don't need this. So, Petty, I think to make a point, I'll start standing in front of his office, wherever that is. I doubt if he's going to be here, but I'll try it anyway, with a little sign-up and maybe try and embarrass him a bit and let the media know I'm going to be there. I, I, some other people wouldn't do this. I understand that. People don't want to be out front of this. They, like you said a few minutes ago, the worst thing is public speaking for a lot of people. And uh, by the way, that was a great thing that show that's coming on. But the uh, it was uh, yet they don't want to uh, they don't want to go. I understand that they'll talk. We'll talk amongst ourselves. But Patty, that is uh, you know you you call their offices the uh, the MPs' offices who represents you and then Seamus is the Minister of Labor and they say oh this is a HR issue we can't deal with this. <laughs> what are you there for? You know what are you there for? But there's no embarrassment, no shame. Well, oh, no, it. But it would just leave it in Never Never Land. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, the stories are unbelievable how people's lives have been absolutely flipped upside down because they, we can't yeah. give people their paycheck. Like, you talk about the oh, fundamentals of being an employer. Yeah. Number one, get people their check every second Friday or whenever it is they get paid. Well, they're regular employees. They get there, and you can be sure of that. Yeah, fair but, enough. Uh, anybody who leaves down there goes, uh, gets thrown into the DF of the payroll system in federal government. Patty, by me, I'd like to move on to a separate topic. I'm, I'm trying to keep this. Uh, we have other callers. Uh, in Quebec, there was a provincial election this week, past week. Yep. And uh, the province of Quebec uh, elected by a vast majority uh, called the CAQ. Now, what that is, is that's a party, a provincial party that looks after Quebec's interests and not the interests of the federal liberal or federal conservative or federal NDP. They look after, they're not a branch of those parties like we have here. We got the liberals or their baby liberals to Ottawa and we got a, the NDP and the, they take guidance from their Ottawa group and the conservatives are, are babies of their Ottawa group. But the CAQ with an overwhelming majority 
And this seems to work for Quebec. Quebec does really well in Confederation. The CAQ got elected because it looks after the interests of Quebec. Now, I often wonder why that doesn't happen here. Well, fair enough. Um, there's been some attempts at these types of provincial parties that aren't linked with a federal counterpart or at least a tangential link with their federal counterpart. So the CAQ is the Coalition Evanair Quebec. They won 90 out of 125 seats in their National Assembly. It's also interesting, it's the first time since 1956 that either the Liberals or the Parti Québécois haven't won a consecutive election. So they have got a stronghold here. It's very much a nationalism party. There are some very questionable comments that have come from Legault, some very questionable policies and legislation that's been implemented there. But they really build on that concept of Quebec is a... You know, it's a nation within a nation, and we know how we talk about and think about Quebec on that front, and there's a lot of, I think, important questions about Quebec's place. They're important in the Confederation, but they do get a lot of upside that only they get. No other province shares some of the benefits that flow to the province. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That works. They've been doing that for decades, and that works. They'll say, you know, give us what we want or we're going to leave. And I don't think that the majority of people in Quebec want to leave, but I think, hey, what do we got to lose here? The federal government is going to buy, buy us off, no matter what big parties in, you know, from across Canada, liberals or conservatives or NDP or in party, they're going to give us what we want because we hold this uh, implied threat over their heads of uh, nationalism. Uh, yet here in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, you're right, we haven't had a few parties. They haven't got off, probably the latest one being uh, Newfoundland-Labrador Alliance, which is great. You know, it removed the whip. You know, this uh, right now, you when you're elected as an MHA, you represent the government, the governing party. You do what you're told or you're whipped into it into being. Uh, but uh, the Alliance Party was a uh, free vote to the House, you know. They, they, never, never mind if you, if uh, Mr. Fury or Mr. Uh, what's his name, uh, the Minister of Energy, uh, um, comes, yeah, Parsons or Mr. Hogan tells you you got to vote with the government on this. You represent the best interests of your uh, of the uh, of your MHA, your your riding or district, uh, provincially, but uh, for some reason or another, we just keep putting our lining ourselves up to be booted around by federal interests. Uh, the yeah. fishery is federally governed; it's a mess. You know, and, but uh, none of that would change. Like, let's say the just, let's say we had forty independent members, that wouldn't change our relationship with Ottawa and things like the fishery necessarily. And I wonder aloud, and I've spoke with Graydon Pelly about this live on this program, about just exactly how would that work? It sounds terrific in concept because there's nothing worse than the whipped vote, especially if you're representing uh, a district that does not benefit from and/or is in contradiction to what your district needs, but yet you vote with the government side. I get the problems with that, and that we have a of a broken system there but i often and i've said this and some people think i'm i'm nuts to say it out loud but i will is it's like herding herding cats eventually you'd have the gang of seven that are like-minded and they join forces we'll have all these little coalitions that all of a sudden would inevitably based on human nature just develop inside these the concept of 40 independence i like the thought but i wonder how does it work in practical terms that's all all i will say but i completely understand and accept your point last one for me and uh, quebec and i'll let you have the last word mike is the 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 dominant force that was the Liberals and the Parti Québécois. The Parti Québécois has three seats. 
three seats. It's a remarkable turn of events. And I think the larger question regarding Quebec representation on the federal scene is they take the same attitude to the House of Commons that they do in their own National Assembly. They go in there and it's only Quebec. Uh, it's Quebec first and Quebec only. The hell with everyone else. We federally finance their seats and their, their positions as members of Parliament and their staff. But they're always talking about the hell with the rest of us, thumbing their nose at the rest of the country and talk about separation every now and then. Yet we pay for their position in the House of Commons. That makes no sense to me at all, personally. Yeah, it seems to work for Quebec, doesn't it? Sure does. And, and I, I think at times that somebody should be looking after the interests of Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, and if that's what it takes to do that, you know, uh, I will say, well, my goodness, we can't do that. All the benefits we get out of Ottawa. You know what? We, we've had 70 years or 70 plus years of confederation of liberal Tory, same old story. And where are we today? Your opening stories were talking about Muskrat Falls and the Lil and another 530 million dollars and and we're running around with chickens with our head cut off out there in the Stephenville area and you know I, I, maybe it's time we matured and we grew up and looked at for ourselves I'm not saying separate from Canada absolutely not Canada's a very important we're lucky to be part of it it would be such a bad idea <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean that's ridiculous. Anybody who says that is ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. But I think, in the terms of you said the fishery, and, and I'm going to close on this. Uh, I happen to know that industry fairly well from extensive involvement in it. Um, the uh, you're right. Uh, first, can we manage the fishery? No, of course we can't. Maybe in time we could, but not. We can't now. But can we prevent the federal government of Canada from making policies or failing to make policies that hurt? us so badly like the seals are a good example on that but uh can we do that as a as a more free-spirited free-thinking group of uh, mhas who, who would say to not be afraid and cowered by a federal party but who would speak on behalf of the province and say just a second now no you can't do this but they won't say that now because we're afraid of upsetting their large brothers in in uh, in ottawa patty as always it's a pleasure to speak with you thank you so much have a great day uh, you too uh, dave williams just said in my ear he wants me to put you on hold so you'll speak with david very quickly mike okay thanks for the all call right, thank you okay all the best okay. bye-bye he is on hold. Man, that Phoenix pay system, imagine. Compensation capped out at 2500 bucks. What do you say to the person who has now every credit card maxed out, declared bankruptcy, lost their home? Here's $2,500. Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to Twillingate, beautiful part of the province. Maybe a Stanley Cup sighting in that community? The mayor, Justin Blackler, is on the line. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Twillingate. That's Justin Blackler. Mayor Blackler, you're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Great today. How about you? Oh, boy, living a dream. Living a dream for sure. Like you would. So what's going on in town today? Has the cop made its way to Twillingate? Well, we got we got a cop in route, I do believe. So we got a school activity now around 11.30 where the kids are going to be going over to the high school, local high school here, all the kids in the community. And they got some uh, some celebrations, some activity over there. And then uh, then we got some events down to the stadium after that. Looking pretty good. It's pretty exciting. And, I mean, like I mentioned off the top of the program, it's the fourth time the Cup has been here, but the first time it's been here twice in one year. So people must be looking forward to it. Personally, I was thrilled to get to have a look at it again this summer. No, it's awesome. Uh, the town is, is pretty well buzz. We got all the kids here now with jerseys on and sporting their craft hockey field gear or their favorite hockey team or whatever. 
Um, so it's a, it's a positive, it's a positive experience so far. There's a lot of work put into it, but uh, a lot of frustration, obviously, for the committee and a lot of hours <laughs> gave up by them. But uh, I think it's going to be a huge success, really. Oh no doubt it will be. So of course, Twillingate won the Crafts Hockeyville back in 2020, and the prize package, of course, included a preseason game and the cup coming and a few other things, some money for the rink upgrades. But the rink in your community was unable to host an NHL preseason game, so it's moved off to the Steel Community Centre in Gander tomorrow night. The Habs and the Senators. There were some people concerned uh, in the community about how they'd be prioritized to get a ticket. How did it work out? I mean, Patty, you're looking at, you know, four or 5,000 people looking at getting a ticket, and you're looking at just a few hundred tickets available. So I don't think there's any plan that anybody could come up with where we were going to satisfy everybody. Sure. Uh, the, com- the committee kind of prioritized that the kids in the hockey associate, local hockey association uh, were taken care of. They took care of what they could deal with and the people involved, and they spread it around to the best that they possibly could. Um, you know, there is some frustration and some upset with people not getting them, and that was going to be – I think that's evolved anywhere. I mean, if we had five or 6,000 tickets, we'd be able to give them everybody. But yeah. the, situation, the situation is, you know, the resources weren't there. Um, I mean, the community put a lot of work and a lot of thought into it and distributed them the way that they thought would best meet the need of what we had, you know. Look, and you know better than many, is if you're trying to please everyone, you're destined to fail because it's simply impossible. And when there's only a finite number of, a number of tickets and more fans than tickets, then inevitably someone's going to be mad. And I totally get it. I'm, and I'm sure everyone did the best they could. Uh, just a couple of things, uh, some general questions about the most recent tourist season, which is not really over here yet. And Twillingate does indeed rely in part on tourism being strong. How was the summer? It was good. Uh, Twenty relies very heavily on tourism, Patty. Uh, without it, we'd be in a we'd be in a hard spot. So we've seen a pretty good rebound year after a couple of years of being down with COVID, obviously. Um, being involved and talking to a lot of accommodators, a lot of businesses, they had a good year. I mean, we'd always take more, but they've had a great year coming back after COVID. Uh, we still got people buzzing around right now. No doubt, we had some events there a little while ago with some marathon runs and. Uh, you know, a few events are keeping people into the, the shoulder seasons. We're trying to make that length here in just the summer. And we've got some local people who are trying to extend what the tourism season is in Twillingate. And hopefully we see the benefits of that sooner or later. Uh, help me understand whether or not you speak with some of these tourism operators or whatnot. How closely they track where people came from and why they came here. Because that's something I'm always curious about. Did they see come from away? Or are they here to go to the World UNESCO sites? Are they here to see a whale? What are they here from? Why are they here? Where do they come from? Do you guys track that very closely so that you can focus in on how you market your offerings? Yeah, no, awesome, awesome question. So we actually had a group here this year. Um, we were lucky enough to be under the step funding um, where we had organizations that were tracking basically who were coming in, you know, where you're from, what you're doing here, what did you want to see, and kind of what would you like to see different next time on your next trip. So that group is actually tracking a lot of data for us and let us know what the hot spots are. Now, I mean, icebergs are a huge draw if we get them. Um, the whales this year were amazing. So we did have people coming for that. But we got some people just coming to want to see rural Newfoundland, different parts of the country. Uh, we've seen people come from far away. We've seen local Newfoundlanders come here. So we do have a group this year that we're tracking that. Um, and I think the data we're going to get out of that is going to be huge for us moving forward with the plans on tourism. Because if you know that you had 40% came from the greater Toronto area, well, then you can focus in on the greater Toronto area with how you sell the product and market the tours and all the rest of it, or the rugged beauty, whatever it is people came to see. I just don't think we've ever done enough of that in this province. We just throw up a big billboard or we put up a glossy television ad. But if we knew exactly who was coming to why, we could probably max it out. Absolutely, and so we, we hung on to the iceberg thing as long as we could, and then hopefully we'll get a lot more in the near future. But uh, we got a few different things now. we got some hiking trails that are on par with anything else on the province for sure. 
Um, and we see a lot of people coming hiking those trails, Fatty. Um, a lot of time and effort, money going into that. And there's some pretty beautiful trails they're taking around the coastline of Tullingate. So that's awesome. That's bringing in some new clientele. And uh, some of the research has showed that some of the hikers are actually staying longer and spend more money than, than some of the other tourism. So it's, it's a little niche that you want to get involved with, and uh, we're seeing the benefits of that too. So if we can keep track of why you're coming and what you're looking for, what you like the most and what you'd like to see next time, and I think we can pretty well plan strategically moving forward with tourism for sure. I think it's great and uh, good on you and the community for doing that bit of work because that information, that data is going to be powerful and will pay off no question in the end. Enjoy the day with the cup with the kids and the game tomorrow night. Absolutely, Paddy. Thanks very much. Appreciate the time. Take care. All right. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Justin Blackler, the mayor of the town of Twillingate. You know, it reminds me, of, for instance, when they at Marble Mountain and they were going to make skiing free for the weekend. Remember that there a few years ago because they had the troubles with the ski lifts had shut down and there was a bunch of mighty struggles and it has been a couple of tough years for the crowd at Marble. So we offered up a free weekend. But what we did not do is ask people where they're from, whether or not it was their first time whether or not they enjoyed the experience, whether or not we'd get your email address and put you on some sort of list and bombard you with the next offering at Marble. Well, to my understanding, it wasn't done. Same thing, and I guess communities will have to take it on or the tourism operators themselves will have to take it on. If you know where your guests are coming from, because there's no better advertising in the tourism world than word of mouth. That's what convinces your friends and your neighbors to say, man, you have got to go to wherever. Let's just say Twillingate. You've got to go to Twillingate. The Twillingate tourism operators, they can do their level best to try to get to you, to convince you to come. But it's when your friends or your family say, you won't regret it, go to Twillingate. So if we know that is the case, and then we complement it with a bit of actual formal marketing coming from, whether it be Iceberg Tours or the community of Twillingate at large or the entire region, and you pool your resources and you go to exactly where your pocket of potential travelers are because they just had dinner with Judy and Johnny last Friday and they said, you got to go to Twillingate. And then the next thing they know, they see an ad in their local paper or something for, come to Newfoundland and Labrador and they say, well, Let's go. Let's figure it out. Because that's how the tourism business, in a nutshell, kind of works. It really generates the kind of activity that you can't pay for. When people go home and say, the people were lovely, the vistas were beautiful, the whales are wild, the puffins are cute, the, uh, the culinary scene was strong, and the place was clean. Well, there you go. You can't buy that kind of advertising, but you need to know who your customers are. One thing on the tourism business, this is a note I got from a gentleman uh, yesterday. And it reads, the trail from the railroad, railroad Museum to Port of Basque, there is, no, there is little to no signage once you are out of the park going towards Mount Pearl to show where the trail reconnects. The trees, there's no signs anymore. And this person had to ask six different people how to reconnect. No one can give them a straight answer. So how the tourists supposed to know? This guy's from here. You know, those little things can't go overlooked. Whether it be signage on the highway and or signage in closer to communities and signage on the trailways and all of those types of networks because that's an important thing. Sometimes we lose sight of it possibly because I'm from here. I know how to get back on the trail. But if I'm from Bangor, Maine, I don't know how to get back on the trail. So those little things also go a very long way. Let's take a break. When we come back, the show is all yours. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Well, as usual, sometimes when we talk about a specific topic and maybe didn't catch all of the commentary or the conversation, Dave's getting a bunch of phone calls about the GST. So 
A lot of people were thinking that the GST bump that was promised by the Liberal government as part of Bill C-30 would have been on their October check, which was deposited into their bank accounts today. And it's not there. It's not there because it has been passed in full. On Monday, the finance minister, Christian Freeland, uh, appeared in front of the finance committee. It made it through a committee with zero amendments. The chair of the committee, Peter Fonseca, brought it back to the floor of the House of Commons yesterday. It's fast-tracking through there. It needs to go through the Senate, of course, which is the process for the legislation. Through the Senate, and people are thinking that it could indeed pass as early as today or tomorrow. And at that point, the money should flow very freely because if you're already registered through CRA and you're eligible for GS, it's just a matter of them putting that money out. Now, the offering always was that the additional GST bump would be out by the end of the year. So obviously it didn't make your October check. The next, uh, co- the next check coming is not till January. So the assumption would be, and I know it's dangerous to assume when we talk about the government, but the only play available is for them to s- put out a separate standalone check of what would reflect the six-month bump in the GST, which is if you are a single Canadian with no children and an additional or an extra $234, a couple with two kids, an extra $467, and seniors, they give it out. This is on an average uh, or an aggregate, an extra $225. So it's just getting through the Ottawa process now, and you'll get that money after it receives royal assent as legislation requires. Let's go. Line number one. uh, Good morning, Donna. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning to you. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Oh, uh, not too good this morning. Um, I'm just going to start the story off. It's about the medical transportation program, you know, for residents. Well, Labrador West, Labrador City in particular, I'm talking about right now. Okay. Uh, my mom, a couple of years ago, um, it starts off, she had uh, went to a breast cancer surgeon, and um, she had memory problems, of course, so they, re- they uh, referred her also to a geriatric specialist. This is how it starts. So that went fine. There's no problem with that. Um, and let's go back to recently. So then about a year ago, she gets a letter from the same specialist to come out for an appointment from Labrador West to St. John's, which is good. This is all great. So this is what we put in for the medical for her, just her airfare, because she stayed with me, so we just airfare. And they first, the appeal, it was denied first because they said uh, she wasn't a specialist. She was basically GP. So I understood that. I got the information from Eastern Health and Official letter uh, saying this indeed was a geriatric specialist. So I sent it to the government, the proof they required. This was fine. So we heard yesterday that the appeal was denied, and they're saying now a different reason. They're saying, well, she had to be referred. But what I'm saying is originally she was referred. That's not what we're claiming. Like, say, a couple of years ago, the doctor is now, she's now a regular patient. So when you're a regular patient and the doctor requests to see you, and it's not a regular GP, shouldn't you get your airfare? It's like you're not referred, it, like, say, to a doctor that referred you a couple of years ago. You don't need to be referred when you're a regular patient. That's my point. So that was their point, that that's why they weren't giving her the uh, airfare back. Uh, uh, maybe I just got lost in that uh- why are, why are they being denied? So they were a doctor requested them to come see this particular doctor. Yeah, and first, for first, first they said the reason. First, the reason they weren't paying her uh, before I appealed was because she said she is a GP and not a specialist. And I knew the difference of that. So Eastern Health 
sent me the proof letter. You know, I requested the doctor's office, could you send me a letter saying what the doctor's qualifications are for the government? Uh-huh. And I was, and I will send it in. So I thought this was great. They said yes, and she's a geriatric specialist. A very official letter. So then they then uh, so then um, that appeal. That was the appeal, sending in the proof. Then that was denied. But they didn't mention the different reason. All of a sudden, it's a different reason for the same case. <laughs> they're, they're saying she should have been referred, but she was originally. She's just an ongoing patient now, you know, getting treated by this geriatric specialist, which is specialized in the Miller Center. So they're saying, well, she wasn't referred again. again. But she didn't have to be referred. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I do. Well, I mean, let me just think, think this out loud. Yeah. So. They're now saying that there wasn't a referral. So what's the inference here is that a doctor in St. John's or wherever, a doctor in St. John's says, you know what? I heard about this woman, Mary, up in Lab City. I should give her a call, see if she wants to come in. Right? That isn't how anything works. So there had to be a medical link. Exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about. I don't like me, if I want to see a kidney specialist, I can't just say I'm going over to see someone now. I'm getting my airfare from lab. So you have to be uh, that doctor's patient. It's like here's my example. Just say for cancer is a good one. She now she has cancer. You say she has. I don't know now if she has come up for say an MRI. Say I don't know if it's every three or six months. Let's just say new cancer. Well, okay, she's not going to be referred to him. He's been her radiation oncologist for lung cancer years ago. This is just another example. Does that mean she got to get referred again to the same doctor for the same? You know what I mean? You know, we already have people who are jumping through hoops, and even for doctors. Yeah. Doctors get worn out. There's some 3,000 forms that doctors might have to avail of in the course of a year. So if we have a referral that requires ongoing treatment, why, 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 why would we have to go back to the well and get another formal referral for the exact same treatment for the exact same doctor for the exact same reason? That's exactly my point, but they said this is their final answer on this. I don't think I'm going to go now to the MHA. I'm doing some forms now and going further with it, but I thought it was outrageous. I mean, there's no gray area. It's not like, you know, she lived out here trying to get airfare or trying to get accommodations she never had. It's just a really clear cut to me. Yeah, she wasn't bluffing it so she could come in and catch a show. No, and she has. We had the proof that she attended the appointment. Everything. The doctor signed a form for me saying uh, other things. But they said she's also referring, and she's the doctor. I said yes, she is because she was referred years ago. It's not a new referral. I understand the first one. You would have to do it, but it's yeah. the same doctor. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, it should never be so complicated, should it? No, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I really can't believe it. Like, I understand certain things you go with. There's rules of rules, and I respect them, but I thought that was sort of outra- a senior. It, it's outrageous. Out of pension, and now cannot get the airfare back. Yeah, I, I under- I'm pretty sure I understand the concern, because our referral only needs to be given once. I mean, That's why would we ever yes. need it given more than once? That's right. Yeah, because the doctor's not the doctor's not game in the system. The patient isn't game in the system. There's an appointment. There's a medical transportation program in place. If you meet the eligibility requirements, it shouldn't be a matter of trying to arse around with this kind of stuff. It should be just pretty fundamental. So I appreciate the time on the topic, Donna. Yep. Thank you very much. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring it to your attention. And like, uh, she was a specialist. It's not like she's in Labrador City and she can go see her anytime. I understand that too. So uh, yes, I just hope now that I'll be able to get some success with it. Maybe the MH the MHA is definitely going to look into it for me, and we'll see what happens. Appreciate this. Thank you, Donna. And thank you. And you have the best day. You too. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, let's go to two. Frank, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty. This is a. Uh, fr- uh, 
I wonder. I know you're saying something about GST. Yeah. Now, is it is the family gets so much and single people get so much? How how do it work? Well, you know, based on your income and your eligibility. So low. Low income, generally speaking, there's about 11 million Canadians are eligible for the GST, and it's all based on your tax filings from the year previous. So that's the basic nuts and bolts of it all. Yeah, but uh, they were mostly, mostly saying they're a rate of something about uh, 400 for a family, and single people gets 234 or something like that? Yeah, single Canadians with no children, that's $234. 467 for families with two children. Seniors, they give out an average number, uh, $225. And like I said, it's all based on your last year's tax filings. The maximum you can earn is just a shade over $48,000. If you, if you earn any more than $48,000, I think it's right around there, then you're not eligible. For oh. couples, you have a net income around $63,500 before tax to be eligible. So that's the cutoff numbers. Yeah, but see, uh, Paddy, what it is, see, uh, I'm, not on, uh, I'm not on this, uh, what do you call it? I, did, I didn't work, right? I'm on social assistance, and I do have a low income, right? Well, it's all about your tax filing. Oh, tax filing? Yeah. Well, for starters, you have to have filed your taxes with CRA to even have a shot at being eligible. And it's all about net income. And it doesn't necessarily break it down as to where you had received net income. It's just what came in the door that that requires a tax filing. And so that's the basics of it. Singles, it's about 48 grand. Uh, Common law, married folks. Up to four children, I think it is. It's around $63,000. So, And then you will be eligible for GST. And that comes automatically. You just check the box and when you do your tax filing. I haven't been eligible for it, so I, I'm just trying to make sure I'm accurate here. When the filing is made, if you meet the eligibility requirements, you get GST. That's it. Yeah. Now, like, you know, Penny, I, I went to the bank today, right? I got me GST, right? Like, I mean, regular the way I used to get rate is... Uh, $135, right? But I, I filed me taxes for the 2021, and I'm only making a little over 8000 or something. Okay. So I'll be entitled to that over that two something, will I? Do you get GST right now? Yeah. Then yes. Okay, then. So uh, when, when, when will that come out now? Will that be out on the, on the next year or... It'll be out before the end of the year, says the government. Now, they say lots of things, but that's what we're told. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it didn't make it to the October check. The next one's not till January. So if you're getting it by the end of the year, it means there's either going to be another check cut before December 31st or a direct deposit into people's bank accounts who have that set up with the Canadian Revenue Agency. Oh. Or the Canada Revenue Agency. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks a lot, Patty. I appreciate that. That's right, Frank. Keep, keep the good work up. You too, buddy. All right, buddy. Take, take care. Bye-bye. All right, and so Catherine says that if you go beyond one year without seeing the same specialist for the same reason, you need a new referral. (laughs) The make-work stuff that we go through is really quite something. It really truly is, isn't it? So I have an issue. I need to see the specialist, and so I do. And in 
13 months, I have another appointment. Because remember, sometimes it's really a matter of fact that it's just hard to get back in to see a specialist in particular. But you got to jump through that particular hoop again to get the, a duplicate. They could just put a the referral on the Xerox machine and send that because it was the exact same referral. Makes a lot of sense to me. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, still a lot of show left to speak with you. Do not go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go say good morning to the PC member for Exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey. Good morning, Pleeman. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Patty. What's on your mind? Uh, thank you. Patty, earlier uh, this summer, uh, I think it was in August month, I did talk to you regards to our uh, capability of uh, fighting forest fires, fighting forest fires, fires, and our need to, um, you know, research our capacity to do that. Um, you know, back in, uh, we did have five water bombers, of course, in 2018. We did lose one due to an accident while refilling, and this, this left us with four. But uh, during a recent ATIP, uh, Patty, we've also found out that, you know, from uh, July 1st, to August the 4th of this year, we were basically down to three planes because of staffing problems and some unserviceability work with the bombers. So that, that left us with three three water bombers in a peak period of forest fires, you know, at this time that, uh, you know, when uh, with the climate change the way it is and things changing, the hot weathers and that sort of stuff, like we were... We were in a bad predicament even if something happened, and it did, Patty. Those forest fires happened. So, yeah, again, I'm just uh, reiterating the fact that we do need to sit down and, and uh, you know, uh, look over our forest fire, fire capacity. Yeah, I mean, the damaged one, it struck a rock when it was trying to refill out of the pond, right? Yes, it did, yes. Okay. It was back in 2018. So what was always really strange about that is at the exact same time, especially in Labrador, they were questioning where the water bombers were located. Then we lost one. The government said, well, let's see if we can try to sell it, as opposed to let's see if we can try to replace it. Well, that's what they tried to do. They didn't replace it. They didn't do anything with it. They nope. didn't take no action on anything. And uh, obviously, they didn't do anything on uh, try, trying to have enough equipment to the staff or or plane equipment to, to go there, because now we were down to three in the most peak period of uh, of the summer when those forest fires do, do, do happen. But, uh, you know, governments, uh, seems like government's intent was to use the planes uh, as they needed them, uh, going from one fire to the other. But at the time during the peak period, that is, so we had four, uh, five uh, major forest fires there, which basically, uh, you know, gave us big problems, and they going going, you know, from one fire to the other, which uh, left water bombers and crews uh, with with, uh, with a desire of needing more equipment. Yeah, it, it always did strike me as sort of an odd approach to take that. We thought we thought we needed four, or we thought we needed five. One is taken out of service, and we don't even think that we need to replace it to bring it back to the quota that we thought we needed. We simply tried to sell it. It's just sort of a, a strange way to approach anything in this world. It is, Patty, and I suppose, you know, and we see it now. I mean, see climate change is there. It's happening. The drier weathers, the hot summers. You know, we all realize the hot. And it was a beautiful summer. I don't think any of us would uh, would uh, disagree with that. But it, it puts it in place, you know, of, of fire hazards, higher risk for fires and that sort of stuff. So with those stuff, this stuff happening now, Patty, at this this time, you know, change is happening with the uh, forest, uh, forest fire index. And, the, you know, we need to be properly prepared for those, uh, those types of 
of fire authority. We really, really do. We need to assess our water bombers and our ground crews too, of course, of. Uh, of, uh, you know, uh, being able to handle those type of fires. But, now, Patty, having said that, the crew that we had, you know, the, the four fire workers themselves, they did a fantastic job on what they had to work with, you know, what government provided them. They did a fantastic job on, on, on uh, maintaining those fires. They they do. They do remarkable work. Like, I remember when the fire right here at Kemount Terrace had to watch the, with the precision water dropping on that fire, and if it wasn't for them, we might have had a catastrophe on our hands. So they do. Prima, can you tell me where all the water bombers we have are located? Uh, right now, I think uh, most of them are in Canada, but that's where most of the water bombers are, 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 uh, are held right now. Uh, some in St. A couple in St. John's, I do believe. And uh, so, yeah, it puts a, uh, puts a, you know, in regards to what about bombers do is in a central, central aspect of it. Yeah, and we did, you know, we had three big fires raging all the one time here on the island this year, and we all recall just a massive forest fires that were in Labrador a few years ago. So, yeah, you've got to have the equipment required here. It can't be all about simply looking to other provinces to assist, even though that's important, and we've done it for other provinces as well, just like we are now with Newfoundland Power and Bell Alliance employees up in PEI in Nova Scotia. But, yeah, it's a fair point to bring up on the water bomber. We can put it back on our list for questions for the minister responsible. Sure, and uh, you know, like I say, and I would like to see the uh, government and, and the minister themselves addressing this situation and, and get us ready, get us certainly ready for next season. Appreciate the time, Pleman. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye. That's uh, Pleman Forsey, the PCMHA for Exploits Voting District. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I mean, the the likelihood and the conditions for fire are obviously very, very real. Just look at the the landscape that we live in here, both on the island and in Labrador. And not being prepared is always the worst-case scenario, isn't it? Because after a fire is ignited, after we try to summon the resources to get through it and to combat the fire, then if you don't have the water bombers, which are a pretty key tool, just look at some of the issues that they had even access in the hotspots with the on-the-ground firefighters, and there were many, and they did yeoman's work out in Central, and the Paradise Lake fire in particular, I think, was the biggest one, if I'm not mistaken, if that's inaccurate. You can let me know. Uh, it's interesting, uh, just the kind of commentary that we're getting about the next phase of wind development here in the province. As we know, there was a ban on any of those forms of energy given the Muskrat Falls development and all the news now that we've now been uh, told about Muskrat and investment out in Bay Despair and Hollywood's going to stay around, all of those types of things. But the wind development thing, I'm getting, if I just do the anecdotal and the unscientific polling of my email inbox... More people worried about it and opposed to it than in support of it. The reasons are varied. So we've moved on to the second phase of this wind farm proposals. The government apparently has received 31 land nomination submissions for wind energy projects. It is going to be a competitive bid process. There's includes all the uh, proposed consultations with communities, indigenous partners, and otherwise. They say at this point, according to government, there have been zero crown lands approved. And the big question on that front will be, even if we're talking about World Energy GH2, is when they use Crown Land, are we selling them the Crown Land or are we leasing them the Crown Land? Because there's a possibility for any of these type of business ventures to not work out as intended. There are still lots of unknowns about green hydrogen. There is certainly a big issue regarding cost. So it may work. It may not work. So that would be a question I have about Crown Lands, but I'm a little bit confused about some of the, pe some of the uh, positions people have taken in opposition. 
there's one person who's really hyper focused on this issue and fair ball whatever whatever is a concern of yours you can feel free to share it with me you know making the direct link between one of those types of projects whether it be in Argentia and or uh, in Stephenville as akin to the Muskrat Falls project well not really because unlike Muskrat are unlike green hydrogen and the MOU sign between the province and Germany and the country and Germany is I'm not an investor, I'm not the rate payer, I'm not the customer, right? Which is extremely different than when we talk about Muskrat Falls. I paid for the project, I'm going to pay for the power, I'm the sole customer outside our relationship with Amera because there's no real excess power to speak of, especially if we're going to try to decommission that black smoke puking operation out in Holyrood. So it's much different. Now, the province says there has been no money afforded to these projects. We will not be subsidizing these projects. That's what the commentary includes as of this moment. There is going to be federal monies. They've already established monies for these types of alternative forms of energy to be produced. Curiously, we're not the customer, even though we're going to be utilizing our land and, I guess, our wind, which we get for, we get for pretty cheap, but our water our communities, our deep water ports. So there's still got to be something in it for us. But I'm not 100% sure how people are making the link between that and Muskrat when I'm not the customer and I'm not the financier of the green energy or green hydrogen, especially the Stephenville project, at, at, at least as far as we can tell. And the questions that we've asked, not only the government, but of course we had John Risley on this program asking exactly that, because that would be the worry that people have. This is new. We already understand how it works in the process to develop a mine. We understand how it works to develop an offshore oil field, right? Because we've been down that path. We know what it includes in whether it be mines or oil or forestry or whatever, because that's part of something that's been part of our history. We get what the benefits are. We understand how it works in large part, but this is new. I mean, there's not even one such project in the country at this moment in time. So, of course, people will be wary. Of course, people don't want to be led down another boondoggled path. But my understanding as of now is that I'm not the financier and I'm not the customer, so I'm a little less worried than I would be about things like, for instance, don't say too loud, Gull Island or something. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Joining us on line number one is the province's consumer advocate, that's Dennis Brown. And good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Well, I don't think too many people will be surprised with the announcement coming from uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro yesterday. Basically, they said similar along the line, but now quite declarative that the unreliability of the Labrador Island link at this moment means that it requires further investment in Bay to Spare, and we're going to use Holyrood as whatever a bridge means. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. I wasn't too surprised. How about you? No. After spending $13 billion nearly of ratepayers' money, Hydro is now confirming that Muskrat Falls power is not reliable. So, therefore, they have to continue with Holyrood, and they have to look for other places to generate electricity on the island. Uh, Petty, none of this is new. From from even before Muskrat Falls was constructed, uh, the government and Nelcor were informed time and again that they would have a lot of difficulty bringing power down all the way from Labrador over the Long Range Mountains and uh, to to the island. And uh, they were told at the time that if 
some of those towers or some go down. It could take weeks, if not months, to get power back up in winter circumstances. However, the NALCOR of the day and the government of the day said, despite knowing this, that they would still close down Holyrood. So people always said, well, where are we going to get the backup power if you close Holyrood? And memory, they told us that they would get it through the maritime link. They'll bring it in from Nova Scotia, uh, which uh, was uh, quite a stretch, as if Nova Scotia and and the mainland had a lot of electricity uh, just uh, on a shelf ready to be sent to our island uh, because of our needs. Uh, so that that would not be a reliable backup either. Well, especially when you consider they were buying power from us. So they, if they didn't need our power, why would they be selling us power? Exactly. Uh, the whole thing was was justified by by saying anything. The government of the day would say anything, whether it was correct or whether they had it verified to get that project on the go. Anyway, we have $13 billion spent, and we still have no reliable power. And uh, the, uh, the entire, uh, right now we have no further money to put into anything. That's all, our budget has been exhausted. So they're looking for $500 million as a start to put in uh, extra capacity at Beta Spear. That would give us another 154 megawatts. Uh, we knew that from the start. That's something they could have done to begin with. We did not need Muskrat Falls. We never did. So they told us once we had it, we'll have 800 megawatts. We'll have all kinds of power. We will be flush. And now they're telling us, no, we're not flush at all. We're going to need uh, new construction to answer the the needs of uh, industrial customers who are coming onto the island. Just for context, the additional 154 megawatts at Bay to Spare with the eighth turbine brings their max output to 758, and Muskrat Falls were told max is at 824, but that's that's pie in the sky stuff too. Uh, very quickly, Dennis, and help me understand this part. So, an eighth generating turbine at Bay to Spare seems to me that would only be there to cover peak demand because there's only so much water. Or am I missing something? No, we're talking about uh, winter. Generally, uh, during the summer, uh, the province probably uses uh, 1,500, 1,400 megawatts in the winter. That can expand to about 1,800 megawatts. So you're talking about winter and uh, when everyone is using their heat. So it's a seasonal thing that we're dealing with. Um, during the uh, summer months, uh, we can very well, if Muskrat Falls power ever comes down uh, consistently, and they are getting some down, but they're not getting it down consistently, uh, well, we can uh, send that to market uh, once we uh, uh, give Nova Scotia the option of buying it at market prices. So it depends on the season. But I'll tell you this, uh, in, in terms of uh, what we need, it's sort of interesting because uh, I was just reading the other day a, um, a, a copy of information from uh, Newfoundland Power. Newfoundland Power today uh, is using uh, 5,735 gigawatts of energy 
here we in in uh, in 2022. Well, guess what? In 2027, Newfoundland Power is using exactly the same amount of gigawatts, 5,700 gigawatts of power. And people will know uh, a gigawatt. Uh, uh, a gigawatt is, uh, you know, one billion watts. So there's no growth in the residential sector on the island of Newfoundland Power customers. So, so what are what are we being told here now? I don't know. It's as confusing as it is infuriating. Um, the one one component of this delay, the schedule has been obliterated by years, in large part now in the last couple of years because of the software put forward by GE on a sole source contract. Dennis, do you happen to know any more about the contract than I do? Because, you know, when I do contractual relations or business with people, there's times for delivery. There's commitments for quality. All those things have to be checked off before there's payment in full. There's liabilities that must be covered by the vendor if they don't deliver as per the terms of the contract. What do we know about GE? Because they seem to be responsible for a lot of uh, excess money that we're going to have to borrow to invest. Well, I'm certain that there will be litigation uh, after all this is resolved, if it is resolved. Uh, some people are of the view that uh, GE should have been uh, dropped as a provider and they should have gone back to the old system. If they got GE in there, uh, well, GE uh, was a, um, a, a bought a company that we were dealing with uh, on uh, Muskrat Falls that Nelcor was dealing with. That's how GE got involved at all. And uh, so they succeeded to another company which had developed this software. Uh, the software uh, hadn't been really proven or tested. Uh, Hydro-Quebec does not use that software. Hydro-Quebec, if they had been doing it, uh, or if uh, we had listened to SNC-Lavalin, we would have used uh, the traditional software. But uh, the Nelcor crowd knew better, and uh, here's where we are. Isn't that a mouthful? Had we listened to SNC Lavalin of all companies, but that's an important point that I think gets lost in the shuffle here. They actually did a comprehensive risk assessment that sat on somebody's desk. It either had to be Gilbert Bennett or Ed Martin's desk, went unread, and some of the red flags that they put up, we could have avoided, but we didn't. And nobody even knew the report existed until it all came out in the wash, which I think was part of the LeBlanc inquiry, if I'm not mistaken, or just prior to when we understood that that was a thing. Yes, it all came out in evidence uh, before uh, Justice LeBlanc's inquiry, and uh, I remember listening there that day. I mean, they sat on information which was critical, but uh, it was typical uh, of Nelcor and the government of the day. They were determined to do this project uh, under the theory, we'll finally get, a, get around Quebec. And where has that gotten us? And they even were brazen enough uh, not to correct people. When people would call into your show, they would say, that's great. When 2041 comes, we'll be able to use that line to bring the 5,400 megawatts from uh, Churchill Falls down onto the island. Well, they knew immediately that that's uh, an engineering incapability. The the lines at Muskrat Falls... Uh, uh, can only uh, carry uh, 800 megawatts. Uh, Churchill Falls is uh, 5,400 uh, megawatt, and they would use superior lines. We would have to put new lines down to get electricity from uh, from Churchill Falls uh, if we were to go that route onto the island, which we would never do. That would cost another four or five billion dollars. 
So they would never even correct people. They allowed people to think that. So um, yeah, only the towers would out, be placed. It all came out in the LeBanc inquiry. It's all there for people to read. Uh, the facts are there, and uh, the the people of the province uh, weren't told uh, concerning this project on a factual basis. And yet you have uh, experts. I know within the 2041 group, we had uh, Cabot Martin, the late Cabot Martin, who was Peckford's energy czar. He knew electricity. We had Ed Hearn, who had argued electricity and issues before the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, And there were others who knew from the get-go this project was bogus. It can't work. And uh, here we are. Ten years later, remember now it's ten years this December when they had the big party at the uh, Confederation Building in the foyer and all the cabinet members were there and, and the premier of the day gave a, a great speech, you know, we're going into another era, et cetera, et cetera. Here we are ten years later and we don't have reliable power from Muskrat Falls and we've spent all our money. Dennis, uh, I know that there, there's been a committee struck to look at what are the realities, what does happen in 2041. I think we've got ourselves convinced that that's uh, the goose that laid the golden egg, but I'm not so sure it's the case. Well, it's not, because uh, in 2041, uh, we're dealing still with Hydro-Quebec. Hydro-Quebec has the transmission capacity. We have the generation capacity. But remember this, Hydro-Quebec is a major shareholder in the Churchill Falls Corporation. That will not end. They, they will have about 35% of the shares, and we have the majority, but minority shareholders have rights. So it's not like it's ours as such. Uh, We have to uh, figure out uh, good value for all the shareholders, including Hydro-Quebec. So uh, in the final analysis, uh, we will have to do uh, some agreement and work with Hydro-Quebec. There's really no other way. Uh, There's a committee struck. Uh, We suggested that uh, when, on behalf of ratepayers, we gave our final submission to the commissioner. We suggested they get out early to look at 2041 because electricity is planned in 20-year stages. Well, this is 2022, so uh, the government of Quebec will be looking at Muscra, at uh, Churchill Falls now in that contract, and we should be too. So that's why there's a committee struck. Uh, the government uh, took the recommendation from the commissioner, and uh, they are looking at uh, all aspects of that, I assume. Appreciate the time this morning, Dennis. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. As the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, time for the 1130 News. When we come back, we're live. Lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. David, you're on the air. Hi, David. Line number two. Yes, hello. Hello there. Yeah, this is Dave Gray. Yes, sir. Okay, I'm calling you about the uh, medical transportation system program. Okay. I was just listening to a conversation from a, a woman from Labrador City about her mother and the going on that they're having. Yeah. Well, my wife and I are in the same boat, okay? What, what's happening? My wife was in for a triple bypass back in December last year. Okay, so then six weeks after that, we made another trip to uh, St. John's uh, for a checkup. 
Uh, March the uh, 3rd, I was in for 25 treatments of radiation. That's not uh, counting the other times that I went to set up radiation treatment. And right now, up to now, we have not received one penny, okay? And I even went as far as got the uh, Newfoundland Ombudsman working on it, and they're at it for over a month, and nothing is happening right now. And I'll tell you one problem is that the forms should be at the doctor's office. I have forms there at my uh, home that I copied off of the computer. So I, in order to uh, get paid, we have to have the doctor's signature and the date on these forms. So now I, I get a form, I had to fill it out and send it to MPAP or whatever, and it will come back, highlight it, doctor's signature, and that. And I have lots of these. So why, why can we not have these forms at the doctor's office? And when you're going to see the doctor, before you leave, the doctor signs it and dates it. <laughs> Sounds about right. Makes it easier. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. So we've been now, uh, well, December the 6th, uh, that's not counting the, she went in November uh, from Gander and was in St. John's until the 6th of December for her heart surgery, and she didn't get released until the 11th. So all that time, I was in the uh, Eastern Elk, okay? Uh, so then when we traveled back in uh, January, we were overnight, and we have the qualifications when it comes to kilometers and all that. We have all the receipts. We send all of that. Uh, so then when I go in, uh, I, when I go in, I make a, a trip in to uh, see the cancer doctor. Uh, I, I can't tell you when that was now, but then I go back in in March the 3rd, and we stay at the Daffodil House until April the 6th. We'll come back home, okay? In between that, uh, I'm not sure, my wife had another appointment for uh, angelosia spondylitis. All of, all of these trips right now, okay? I, I couldn't figure out how much they really owe me, but it's a lot of money, and it's the same... Red tape that this woman was talking about in St. John's. Uh, and the, the next step that I'm going to take, I, I'm going to give the uh, Amazon another few days, and I'm going to go and see my uh, MP, Mr. Small, or his representative, because this is ridiculous. It's bad enough to be sick, okay? And then the frustration that they put up on you when you try to get a few dollars. And I mean, Trudeau and, and Fury, they're passing out millions every other day. And we're trying to get repaid for the expenses that we spent on to sickness. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just a bunch of red tape. And like I say, before I leave, I, I, would, I would ask that the government have these forms in the doctor's offices so that people can have them filled out 
before they leave the doctor, the hospital, or wherever you're at. Yeah, it's a sensible suggestion, David. And I would also go on to suggest that I don't know how much luck you're going to have with getting Clifford Small to do anything because this is strictly a provincial matter, so you're probably better served speaking with your MHA. I'll just throw that one out there because the members of Parliament, they don't have much to do with this particular issue. And the lady earlier, Donna from Labrador, this was about... a. The fact that the referral needed to be replicated because the patient hadn't been seen by that doctor in the last 12 months. So that one's just another silly yeah. one that can be addressed quite simply, I would think. So, as far as, as, far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> it's just excuses. They just try to put people through difficult times when, I mean, like I said, the simple solution to my problem would have been a deformed from that uh, Elk Science Center or St. Clair's. That problem would have been taken care of. I wouldn't have to send a form to the doctor to get it signed and then send it back to him, medical transportation. I spent a fortune stamp. Anyway, I thank you for your time. I appreciate yours. And thank you very much. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, getting things attended to because there's nothing worse than time-consuming, even for the doctor. You know at least one more bit of that doctor's time to do what they could have done at the onset. Okay, you need the medical travel document signed by me. Here's a copy. We have them on hand, or we simply print one in the office. You sign it, you take it away, do the rest of the filling out, whether it be for meal allowances or kilometers traveled or whatever. You submit it, and Bob's your uncle. Not so simple, apparently. Let's go ahead and take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program, and I suppose this was covered in the 1130 News, but... Out of nowhere, another announcement coming from the provincial government about supports for individuals in the province to try, I suppose, to try to deal with cost of living issues. So, if you haven't heard it, here it goes. The government this morning announced a one-time $500 cost of living benefit. The checks will be out between now and sometime before Christmas. So, some 392,000 residents, based on your, uh, your tax return in 2021, are going to get this money. All right, so here's some of the thresholds. Now, if you are eligible based on your tax return, you don't have to apply for this money. You're just going to automatically get it. So if you make $100,000 or less, you're going to get a one-time check of 500 bucks. For those making between one hundred dollars and $125,000, you're going to make a partial payment ranging somewhere between $250 and $500. It's going to cost the benefit. Uh, the, it's a tax-free benefit to, uh, to start with. It's going to cost $194 million, and it's in addition to any of the other measures that have been introduced over the last year. So I'm sure some people will be very thankful to get a check. The comment and the concern, even when we talked about the $3 billion package that the, the federal government put forward, Bill C-30, and the contributions, say whether it be dental care for low-income families, which... You know, it just goes out in the form of a check. It's not to cover a dental bill necessarily, so there's some questions to be asked there. It's the one-time bump in the GST that we've been talking about. We'll give you the details on that one more time. And the $500 uh, benefit inside the Canada Housing Benefit for low-income renters. The thought was that, you know, all of the contributing factors to why we have the inflation rate that we do, and of which they are complex, and they are many, is that more money in the hands of people in search of uh, not enough goods to satisfy the demand. That's certainly part of it. So the thought for some would be, you know, any additional supports here from the federal government, whether it be 
the GST or the Canada Housing Benefit or what's other one, dental care, is just going to further exacerbate the problem. That, that package, you know, on top of the wage subsidies and the CERB and all the rest of it, the thought is, well, we're just going to make a bad situation even worse. If you factor in the Canadian GDP is about $1.7 trillion American dollars annually, so what does $3 billion mean in the big scheme of things for pushing inflation up? Inflation's eased a little bit and maybe a little bit quicker than people thought, even though, man, at 7%, come on, we're all still feeling the pinch. Of course we are. So then someone tells me immediately, just during that most recent break, that this announcement by the government will have a further negative impact on the inflation rate. I'm not so sure about that. But people will ask the questions. This is another $194 million that has to be borrowed. It's just as simple as that. If... You know, the, the question, I guess, becomes, who's better positioned to weather the storm of borrowing? Who's better positioned to weather the storm of cost of living in issues and or inflationary pressures and the rise in interest rates? Would it be the government or would it be you? Right? Because ultimately, that's all that really matters here. If, it's, if you think the answer is, well, me as an individual have to tighten my belt and all that, and fair enough. I mean, we all have individual responsibility that we're going to have to display to get through these matters. But for some, the belt is as tight as it could possibly be. It's cut off the circulation from your, stir, your, your upper body to your lower body. So where else can people tighten some of these things? So I guess that's the ultimate question, is how does that look, and will it have the desired outcome? You know, it's always a matter of, I don't know if it's the honor system or personal responsibility, how people use the money. Like it's not up to me to tell you what to do. Some people will use it to pay off some of the debt they've incurred on their credit card. Some people will use it to put some oil in their in their tank at home. Some people will use it to try to offset the price of fueling up their rig. Some people will use it to uh, pay outstanding bills that they've got piling up on the kitchen table. I don't know. You know, who you are depends on what your life circumstance will be. Then, uh, people asking once more, one more time, for further information about where's me GST. The checks went out today. If you're on direct deposit, you got your October check this morning. You did not get the one-time promise bump that was part of aforementioned Bill C-30. The circumstances of that are this. One more time. The finance minister testified in front of the finance committee on Monday. It made it through a committee with no amendments. The chair of the finance committee, a fellow named Fonseca, he put it back on the floor of the House of Commons. Easy enough to get that through, given the relationship, the voting relationship between the NDP and the Liberal government, considering the fact that this was bumped by the NDP, this was pushed by the NDP. So now what's required, like all legislation, it makes its way to the Senate for the so-called second sober eye, look at it, and then royal assent, and then the money will come out the door. When? We don't know. We really don't know exactly when or what date people can anticipate this bump up of money. And one more time, single Canadians without children get an additional $234. A couple with two kids get an extra $467. And the average amount that seniors can an expect or anticipate is $225. It was always said, even when this was first introduced, and just even in broad stroke, is that people would get it by the end of the year. So I can only assume if government lives up to their pledge on this front, you'll get it before Christmas. 
So it wasn't on your October check today. The next check for the GST recipients, which is about 11 million Canadians, is not until January. So I, I can only assume, which is a dangerous business when talking about the government, that there will be a separate check cut or a separate direct deposit into your account. That's pretty much the lowdown on that. But there's one more time. The provincial government spending some money, $194 million, 392 residents based on their individual tax returns in 2021 are going to get a one-time cost of living benefit. If you earn $100,000 or less, you're getting a $500 check. They also say that'll be up before the end of the year. You don't have to apply for it. Your tax return will tell the tale. If you make between $100,000 and $125,000, you're going to get in the range of $250 to $500. So if I make $124,999, I'm going to get $250. And someone just asked me, is this for households or individuals? It's for residents. It's for individuals. Because it's based on your individual tax return, not based on net family income, for instance. And there's always questions to be asked about net family income, right? If I have a couple of children living in the home and we're really close to some of these thresholds of 100 grand or 125 grand, and between the two young fellas, they make, I don't know how much the boys make, but if that bumped me out over, should I be including my children in the net family income when, of course, I'm the one contributing to the bills? Not necessarily them. They pay for some of their stuff in this world. Of course they do. But not all, like would be the big food bills and mortgages and car payments and the like. So anyway, there you go. There's some information for you. Let's check in on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. Uh, you can follow us there. There was a question posed by a listener that, you know, was there any ever, th ever any thought given to moving Holyrood off the very expensive and the highly polluted fuel, which is called number six diesel, to any other alternative forms of energy? It sounds like a good question. My initial thought would be it sounds a little bit, it's probably not feasible. Here's why I thought that in answer to that particular listener. It would take a long, long, lengthy, massive, expensive process to do any transformation because at the exact same time, we're still reliant on Holyrood for power. Not only because of the glitches at Muskrat, but because of the realities of life. We're still using lots of power coming from Holyrood, so seems unlikely that that would be the answer. Okay. Uh, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.